Welcome to the 10th FG podcast of 2015 related to the FG Twitter debate on Tuesday the 24th of November 2015 entitled Frontline Hepatology Varicel Bleeding Guidelines. This FG debate was based upon the BSG guidelines which were recently published in GUT, the sister journal to Frontline Gastroenterology. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a registrar in London, and I'm delighted to introduce Dr. David Patch, who's a consultant hepatologist and liver transplant physician at the Royal Free Hospital. Dr. Patch co-chaired the recent FG debate with Dr. Diraj Tripathi. Dr. Patch was appointed at the Royal Free as a registrar in 1993 and completed his gastroenterology and general hepatology specialist training in 1998, accredited in general internal medicine and gastroenterology. He was appointed to a substantive consultant post at the Royal Free Hospital in 1998 in the Department of Hepatology and Liver Transplantation. Dr. Patch's specialist interests include the management of portal hypertension and complications of chronic liver disease. He performs upper and lower GI endoscopies including varicel banding and gastric varicel gluing. He also performs a number of radiological procedures including transjugular liver biopsies, hepatic wedge pressure measurements and TIPS procedures. These have comprised his principal areas of research and he is lectured widely on varicel bleeding and complications of portal hypertension. Dr. Patch is also currently one of my bosses. Dr. Patch, thank you for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate in which you included a number of slides which will be put on the, as a link underneath this podcast. A summary of the FG debate will also appear on the website. Dr. Patch, I think most physicians would agree that managing somebody with a varicel bleed, especially an acute bleed, is one of the most demanding roles as a gastroenterologist or as a hepatologist can undertake. And one of the best pieces of advice I was told about varicel bleeding is that you should do your best to prevent it before it happens. With that in mind, how should one approach primary and secondary prophylaxis and what is your beta blocker of choice? Thanks for that question, Philip. I think first thing is that you need to identify whether the patient has varices. Now, up to now, we've endoscoped patients with a diagnosis of cirrhosis, and the advice has been certainly moderate to large varices. These patients should be prophylaxed. Now, in terms of actually diagnosing varices, the sort of more recent developments have questioned whether we actually need to endoscope patients and whether we can consider using techniques such as fiber scanning and looking at platelet counts, etc., to give an indication. And whilst the most recent Boveno meeting 2014 suggested that certain fiber scan values along with a uh, low platelet count would mean that you did not need to endoscope patients, certainly we've looked at our data here at the Royal Free Combined with Mary's and have actually found that it's not quite as sensitive as originally proposed. So I have to say, I think currently my advice is if you think if the patient has a diagnosis of cirrhosis, either radiological or histological, I think uh, an endoscopy should be performed to establish whether they've got varices. A low platelet count is a clue. So if a patient comes in with a bleed and has got a low platelet count, you need to be concerned that portal hypertension may uh, be driving that bleed. But I think the main thing is diagnose the varices first and then consider prophylaxis. Now, with regard to prophylaxis, the beta block of choice up to now has been propanolol. Doses of 10 or 20 milligrams twice a day, I personally think, are probably a waste of time really need to be around 40 milligrams BD and upwards. I think 
carvedilol has been shown to be certainly as effective and better, certainly better tolerated than propranolol. It's now off patent, so the price has come down significantly. And I think the big advantage is that it's once a day. So I would start patients on 6.25 milligrams and try and get them up to 12.5 milligrams. So I wouldn't go higher than that. But it does have the advantage of it's once a day in terms of compliance. And uh, the studies do suggest it's better tolerated and also perhaps may have a better effect on portal hypertension when uh, examined, when patients are examined with wedge pressure techniques. If they don't tolerate beta blockers, then banding is another option in terms of primary prophylaxis, so that's stopping patients from having their first bleed. It is, uh, in the studies, associated with a slightly reduced uh, bleeding rate, but no impact on survival. So beta blockers first, and then um, banding, if not tolerated, would be my approach. Thank you for, for that detailed uh, answer. Um, what are the recommendations for managing gastric varices? Uh, and what glue do you use? And when would you consider using tips? That's, a, that's quite a tricky question, I think. Gastric varices, primary prophylaxis. There's one study from India that, recommend, that found that tobacco glue was better in terms of bleed rate, etc., than primary prophylaxis with beta blockade. Um, glue is the treatment of choice for acute variceal bleeding. There's certainly no role for banding. An alternative to glue is thrombin. I know Diraj in, in Birmingham and also the team in Scotland use a fair amount of thrombin, but we use glue here, histoacryl glue. Uh, they're probably as good as each other. So you've got a patient with big gastric varices. What should you do? I would actually go with beta blockers first, having made sure that the patient doesn't just have isolated splenic vein thrombosis. And glue patients who don't tolerate beta blockers. You have to be honest with the patient. If you're going to use glue as primary prophylaxis, glue can travel. Um, so there are documented cases where glue is in the lungs, in the portal vein, etc. So if this is a primary prophylaxis procedure, the patients need to be consented that the glue may travel. And there are at least two well-documented cases of cerebral embolism of glue uh, with very adverse uh, consequences. So. The trial from India came from an expert centre. They do a lot of invasive endoscopy. Um, and would I recommend that rolling glue out as prime prophylaxis for gastric viruses up and down the country? I, I'd be a bit hesitant of that. Uh, in terms of tips for, prime, for um, gastric viruses, I wouldn't recommend tips as primary prophylaxis. I think tips is a good treatment in secondary prophylaxis, and it gives you the advantage you can embolize uh, via the tips any um, feeding viruses to the stomach. But that's in the acute bleed situation. Thank you uh, for that answer. Um, do you use antibiotics in all variceal bleeds? And um, if so, what, what is the evidence for this? Because it's a question that often comes up. So the data up until now was that uh, was really quite convincing that antibiotic prophylaxis in patients with acute variceal bleeding was associated with not only reduced uh, re-bleed rate, uh, but also improved survival. Uh, again, at the Baveno meeting last year, evidence was shown that those outcome benefits are seen in those patients with more advanced liver disease. So you could argue, I think you could argue that uh, patients, say, with PUS A, low PUS B, do not need antibiotic prophylaxis. The tricky thing there is that you're then having to get people to think uh, as to what to use for the patient when they come in through casualty. And also what's not clear is what happens if the patient transitions from PUS A, or shall we say PUS B, to high PUS B or PUS See, so often a patient will become more jaundiced during that time of that admission. 
So whilst I hate to say this, I would actually still at the moment recommend antibiotic prophylaxis uh, in patients who come in with variceal bleeding. And the reason I hate to say this is that incidence of resistant bacteria is rising and hepatology is responsible for this. Um, not every patient who comes in with decompensation has got sepsis and, uh, and yet we do give just about every cirrhotic a course of antibiotics and there are consequences to this. Thank you. Going back to primary prophylaxis, um, in a patient with advanced cirrhosis, what makes you consider uh, endoscopy? So in the patient with advanced cirrhosis, there's now a debate as to the role of beta blockers in these patients, particularly if they've got ascites. And do, does beta blockade result in a deterioration in renal function and outcome? I'm not sure whether people are just making this um, more complicated than it is. If a patient has advanced liver disease and they're on a drug which causes hypotension and they are hypotensive with impaired renal function, the logical response is to stop the drug uh, and, and let the blood, uh, blood pressure come up. There are, however, additional benefits of beta blockade. And there's more and more now data now coming out that actually beta blockade, even in those patients with advanced liver disease, it has additional benefits. So I don't think this is signed off uh, event that patients with advanced liver disease should not be on beta blockers. I don't think that's the case at all. I think if patients are hypotensive, however, with deteriorating renal function, the beta blockade should be stopped, and those patients should be offered prime prophylaxis with banding as the next alternative. So measure the blood pressure and do look at the renal function, and if the renal function is deteriorating, then apart from also stopping diuretics, I think you should be stopping beta blockade. Thank you. Finally, um, during the FG debate, it was discussed about the lack of mandatory training requirements for banding and flu injection and also it was discussed about the lack of some services such as tips in some parts of the UK. How do you think we should deal with these issues in the short and medium term? I think that's a, a really pertinent question. So I would, I would like to think we provide the training registrars that are all free um, and experience in management, management of portal hypertension and if we have a gastric virus he'll bleed we'll grab one of the registrars and they'll come along and, and hopefully do the procedure but these events are relatively rare the incidence of variceal bleeding has gone down and that's because beta blockade is being used and the patient's cirrhosis is being treated with antiviral drugs etc so Providing a nationwide experience for trainees in the management of all aspects of portal hypertension, I actually think it's getting harder and harder. Pattern recognition is important, and I think use of models such as pig models of varices, I think it's going to increasingly be required. And I guess the sensible thing is that the likes of us need to start thinking about doing some courses, etc., in this area. But identifying patients with an acute variceal bleed and allowing everyone to experience it is, I think, what our job is as trainers. As far as the tips is concerned, and that is a huge bugbear of mine, we're happy to provide 24-7 tip service, but the patients need to get here safely, intubated, appropriately resuscitated, and the referring hospital also has to be prepared to take the patient back, and that can sometimes also be on the same sitting, so we need properly staffed ambulances with a sort of ITU-type environment within them, so the patients are intubated, ventilated, safely transported, and safely transported back. And there needs to be a willingness uh, across the board. This is uh, from not just the referring clinician, but also at higher levels within um, NHS England, that, the, that proper safe transportation is an issue. Uh, and as opposed to just 
waiting till the morning so that you can then transfer the patient in daytime when there's more staff on ITU. Actually, we should be offering what the children with meningitis have, which is uh, patients are scooped up, treated, packaged, and brought for the appropriate procedure. And I think if we were to start to do that, then we would be starting to see an improvement in outcomes. Thank you once again, Dr. Pat, for your excellent Twitter debate and also for this podcast. We're really grateful for your support and time. Uh, Once again, the slides from the Twitter debate will be available for you to look at under the link for this podcast. The next FG debate is our Christmas special one with the Frontline Gastroenterology Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Anthony Manuel, which is on Tuesday, the 29th of December, 2015, at 8 till 9 p.m. and we'll discuss frontline IBS and approach to treatment pathways. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FGDebate.